what information are you avoiding? What do you not want to know? Maybe you're a person that used to be on the bathroom scale all the time, checking your weight, monitoring it. And maybe you got a little distracted with your diet. That little Debbie comes into your life and bringing those oatmeal cream pies and it's trouble, right? (laughs) So you avoid the scale. Maybe you know the credit card debt is just not good. So you don't look at it. You don't look at the balance. You know, you, you, through your bank, you can make the minimum payment of what you think the minimum payment might be. If you're not looking at the balance, you don't know what the minimum payment is. But, you know, you send in a little money here and there, but you don't look at the balance. Right? Maybe you don't want to know something relative to a friend or a partner. Maybe you know it might be uncomfortable, so you don't go there. You don't want to know. So today we're talking about information that we actually avoid. Um, And it happens in a lot of different areas. So I alluded to a couple of them already. So relative to health, you know, there's a great study going way, way back, uh, 1985. And the study looked at 2,000 men who were at a heightened risk of contracting HIV during a a really, very scary time when a diagnosis was almost a death sentence. And all 2,000 of those men were tested for HIV. And 60% of them didn't go back to get the results. They avoided the information, right? And we see that in health too. You know, people who have an underlying condition of sorts, maybe there's something in their family relative to heredity, and they just don't want to go. Uh, you know, the, the adage of, well, I'm not going to get diagnosed if I don't go to the doctor. And with financial information, we see that relative to, in a lot of cases, people checking accounts. Um, I can remember visiting CNBC and them talking about the market being up and viewership being up. Um, there is conflicting data on that. That In some cases, some investors are more active when things are, are low and there could be panic and and whatnot. However, when it's better news, we tend not necessarily to want to avoid it, right? And even with that information, you know, sometimes we do good things with it, sometimes we don't. Um, I always thought it was a cool study, you know, here in New York, they were one of the first to uh, require calorie listings on menus. This was the late aughts, I guess you would call it, right? 2000, I don't know, 2007, 2008, maybe. And there was a study, Brian Elbel, who uh, was at New York University School of Medicine at the time, you know, looked at folks going from poorer areas of New York City and whether those calorie listings were helpful in them in altering behavior. Um, and basically the labels weren't enough. You know, they did like this two-part study, which I thought was really cool. You know, first they asked people, well, you know, did the did the calorie counts, seeing the calorie count um, impact your behavior? And they interviewed those folks, and the folks were like, oh, yeah, it did. I really, you know, I think it was like, I, I don't know, it was like a third of the people said it did impact 
their behavior. But then they, the second part of the study, they analyzed the receipts of the customers, their purchases, right? And actually found that they actually were purchasing more calories than than the uh, that I guess the control, whatever it was. I forget the control and treatment. But so yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really helpful, but at the end of the day. <sighs> It didn't really change things. Now, you know, with research, there's all kinds of reasons why things go the way they go. And you do different types of, you know, you try to control for certain things and you don't want to do like a, you know, we call a univariate analysis. You know, you look at one thing, you look at multiple things and try to control for them. And there was an element of that that got into cost. They were, you know, they were going ahead and looking at neighborhoods that were poorer and money you know, cost, cheap food was likely an indicator of that. George Lowenstein is at Carnegie Mellon University. He calls this the ostrich effect, um, which we basically just bury our head in the sand um, when there's an issue. Now, it's important to note that ostriches don't actually do that. You know, I know it's like a popular thing that people say they do, but ostriches don't really just bury their head in the sand. I want to be accurate with this in case I get emails about ostriches. But um, but anyway, the, the ostrich effect is when we essentially avoid information because we, for some reason, we think it's going to be bad or uncomfortable for us. And there are kind of, there are three different reasons why we have information avoidance. And number one is, it gets into this notion of uh, confirmation bias. You know, new information can make us change the way we believe in certain things, right? So if we don't go and look at that, then we don't have to change where we stand, especially if we're really dogmatic about it, right? So we know that this person is going to say this or this, this news source is going to say this. And so we're not going to bother looking at it. It's also something relative to data, right? We just avoid the data. Because usually the data don't lie. And so we avoid it so that we don't have to be uncomfortable by having to change what are very dogmatic beliefs. The second reason why we tend to avoid information is it could force us to change a behavior that we don't really want to change. I always think about when I first saw the documentary Food Incorporated, um, and it's been, what, 15 years since that's been out, and watching like the factory farms and how some of the animals were treated, that was really, really uncomfortable and required a behavior change on my part. I couldn't watch that and then just go on eating a bucket of chicken from a fast food place that treats their animals the way the animals were depicted in that, in that documentary. So if I don't bother looking at that information, then I don't have to change my behavior. It's very, very easy. You know, it's a notion of a, in some cases, a status quo bias. A status quo bias, we are inherently lazy. We don't want to change things. We want things to kind of stay the way they are. And it's just easier for us. That's just part of our instinct. That's just part of how our brains are made up. 
is that it's just easier to keep things the way they are. And the third reason why we kind of avoid things, and we've kind of alluded to this already, is this notion of emotion or feeling. You know, some information might cause emotions that aren't really, really enjoyable or pleasant, um, or they could they could lessen positive emotions. So, the people in that study in 1985, the emotions associated with finding out information about whether or not you contracted a disease that can likely kill you at that time is obviously going to be unpleasant, right? Or just visiting a doctor in general because you know the doctor's going to say you need to lose some weight and you don't want to hear it. So you don't go. And what we all know is that that can, that type of behavior or avoidance can be really, really risky to our health. It could be risky to our financial well-being. If we're not going to dive in and know where we are, then financially with our credit card balance, for example, how are we going to pay it off? Avoiding it's not going to help. And there's always it's always great to look up research when it comes to the weight loss thing and scales. And, you know, there, there are conflicting studies. However, for the most part, vigilance can be a good thing. Yes, there are limits to that. You can be overvigilant or OCD. But for the most part, if you are monitoring your weight, it's going to be a good thing. It's going to help you. You know, there is something to be said for looking at that oatmeal cream pie and thinking, I got to face that scale tomorrow. I don't want to face that scale tomorrow when it's not good. I want good news tomorrow. So that's really, really helpful, really, really helpful to us if we're a little bit more vigilant when it comes to all of these important things. So when we come back, we're going to talk about five things that we can do to combat information avoidance. We'll be right back. The Num Podcast is supported by We Learn. We Learn is on a mission to help organizations build better humans through learning. It provides a full range of services to assist its partners in building world-class learning and a world-class workforce. WeLearn is also the recipient of three coveted bronze Brandon Hall Group Awards. Check out their blog for content on learning, development, training, and more at welearnls.com slash blog. That's welearnls.com slash blog. This is a Num Podcast. I'm Dr. Charles Chafin. So what can we do when we're dealing with information avoidance. Well, the first thing we can do is we can automate some things. So we can use auto payment um, that could take care of our our credit card. Um, We could even do that when it comes to elements of saving too. Um, All different financial elements to make sure that things are in place that we don't have to think about it. We could even do that with health screenings, right? Set up the appointments with our physician once a year or whatever it might be, and maybe socialize that with your spouse or partner or friend, um, and just have it locked in in place. 
Don't go down. Don't kick the can down the road, knowing if you're going to that you may avoid this information. Number two, um, we we can we cannot estimate the cost and benefit of things, but let's be let's be specific about that. We tend to, if it's something that we don't like doing, we tend to overestimate what it's going to take to do it. Right, so it could be anything as simple as going to the gym, and going to the gym is a great example too, by the way, because you know if you if you watch a lot of people at the gym, the amount of time people are on their phones has to at least double or triple their workout time. And by the way, I don't know how you all handle it, but if you're waiting on a machine or you're waiting on weights. And a, the person that's on the, that machine or using those weights is on their phone. How do you handle that? I, I'm an impatient person. I can go for a little bit and just stare at them from afar, maybe five yards, ten yards. I can do that for about a minute. And then I just want to say, then I'll say, you know, <clears throat> can I work in? And that doesn't always work. People say, well, I have two or three more sets. Two or three more sets of what? Two or three more sets of texts? What are we talking about? All right, I'm on a sidetrack. Let's, let's get out of that. So going back to this weight example, or this workout example, we can be more specific. Okay, I don't want to work out because it takes an hour and a half. Well, you know what? If you weren't on your phone for 45 minutes, it would only take 45 minutes. Oh, you know, if I'm thinking about it that way and I'm being more precise, then I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm more apt to go do it. It's only 45 minutes. It's not an hour and a half. It's only 45 minutes. I think I can do that. Number three, we can, <clears throat> pardon me, when we can, we can basically take complex things and we can break them down into smaller parts. And that could help and it can make it seem like it's not so overwhelming. And if you remember, you know, Wendy Wood did an episode with us talking about habit, talking about, um, and how Hirschfield as well talked about this notion of friction. Um, so we can do a couple things in tandem. We can break down difficult things, things that we're avoiding doing into smaller parts. And then we can also try to eliminate some of the friction that's associated with starting that. Because once we start something, we tend to have a higher likelihood of doing it or finishing it. Um, I'm a runner, so I guess this is another fitness example. But it, sometimes, you know those days where you just, oh, I don't want to do this. But if I can get started and you know do the first mile, then I'm in a zone and I'm ready. I can, I can continue on. And I think that's the case with a lot of different things, especially if we start to see the results of our work. We start to see, okay, this is, this is working. I'm going to continue it and I'm going to move forward. So, you know, breaking things down can make them seem, those tasks or whatever they might be, a lot less overwhelming for the individual. Um, anything that I've ever written, whether it's a book or a dissertation, and I know this sounds so obvious, but I can say that my, anything that I've written I've always felt better, and it was such a, an epiphany for me when I said, you know what, you don't have to write this whole thing tonight. 
it just took so much pressure off. You know, I, I need to get a portion of this chapter done, or I need to do this specific topic area or whatever it might be. And that's it. That's tonight. Or that's what where we need to be at the end of the week. It helps immensely if we can break things down and focus on them and get some get some victories and then move forward. We can also pair something that's unpleasant with something pleasant. So maybe the doctor example, you don't want to go to the doctor. You don't want to get the checkup. So maybe you Reward yourself after you, you know, for once you do the checkup, maybe you reward yourself with a food that the doctor probably is going to tell you do not eat. (laughs) Or maybe if it's really a significant issue, maybe you give yourself the day off, the rest of the day off, but find something pleasant to pair with something that's unpleasant to you so that. It's feeling, so you're feeling like it's, you know, you can do this and you're rewarding yourself for for good behavior, which is really, really important. I actually combined, there are five, I combined eliminating friction and breaking into chunks. Those are, those are, the, those are the five. So of the five, we can automate things, we can use real data and don't approximate what it's going to take to do these things. We can break things into chunks eliminate the friction, and we can pair those things with the unpleasant things with the pleasant things. So there are five. Um, (laughs) I want to mention that you can get the Num Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do get the Num Podcast through Apple Podcasts, I hope you'll leave me a review. You may have noticed that um, I have a second podcast called the Psychology of Financial Planning podcast that I co-host with my friend and collaborator, Dr. Brad Klontz. Uh, You can get that on all the different uh, platforms as well, talking about, well, talking about our psychology as it relates to money. It focuses more on the advisor population, um, but there are a lot of consumers that are really interested in it. So there are a couple episodes that are up now. Uh, you're welcome to take a look at that. So um, always have the Numb Podcast near and dear to my heart. I know it may seem like I'm you know, seeing another podcast on the side, but no, we're, we're all good here. I want to mention, I got my toes in the water, ass in the sand, not a worry in the world, a cold beer in my hand. That's Toes by the Zach Brown Band. Doing some beach time here and um, thought it was appropriate now that we've moved into, moved into June. Um, there's one email I want to mention, uh, share, and that I'm getting a lot of emails too, by the way, and I really appreciate it. And I'm trying to respond to most of them. Um, most of them are great. Um, asking specific questions, and some of them are relative to specific individuals that folks have specific questions about something that they're doing, and I'm trying to answer those or be as helpful as I can. So I respond to those individually. Um, And then if there's one that I feel like might be representative of other emails, then I'll read that one, uh, or if I think it's fun or interesting. And then there are others, of course. Every once in a while you get a few that start with, well, you are this, that you're trying to categorize me, and I don't respond to that. Um, usually they're wrong anyway. 
Nevertheless, um, this email is from Jessica in Virginia Beach, Virginia. As a matter of fact, another beach. Uh, she says, I found your episode on loneliness recently and found it riveting. Uh, it was such a great reminder to me that we have to work to earn close relationships. I fall into the trap of being on my phone or just checked out when there are people around me who I can connect. It's such a great reminder. Thank you. Well, thank you for that that email, Jessica. And that's exactly right. You know, we can make the most of the situations that we're in socially to try to build more authentic relationships. Um, I always think about that luck study that I cited. <clears throat> um, that was late last year where, you know, that was a, the study that looked at, you know, a comparison of lucky people, people who say they're lucky versus people who um, say they're unlucky. And in reality, it was the people who, the people who are lucky tend to make, make the most of the situations they're in socially. And that created more human capital for them um, in ways that were useful to them in their career or in their personal lives or whatever it might be. Um, so it absolutely is making the most of the situations that we're in. And in a lot of cases, putting the phone down um, to find more authentic relationships. A reminder that the Num podcast, Audio Engineer, is Tim Dolbear, and the music is written and performed by the great Jim Torito. Uh, oh, you can email me at the numpodcast at gmail.com, and I hope you continue to do that. And with that, I say thanks for listening, and a reminder, if you're not where you are, you're nowhere. See you later. <laughs>